Jerry. Um, yeah, we've been friends for a long time, and yes, he has got me to thank for his very gorgeous wife. Um, I did talk her into that. <coughs> oh, that was, that, that was me. Um, uh, and it was a good decision, so well done me. Um, uh, last time I came to speak at St. John's was um, a few years ago, and uh, I got the treat of talking about money, um, which is always everyone's highlight and the, the service that everyone misses. Um, and this time I get to talk about singleness, which again is everyone's highlight, and probably there are a few people missing. Um, so well done for making it. Um, but it's Valentine's Day on Thursday, which is so exciting um, for some. And, um, and so we thought we'd celebrate the romance by having a good talk on singleness. And um, this is not uh, a classic sermon. Am I, am I too sorry? I can hear my breath, which is annoying um, for you. Uh, it's not a classic sermon. When um, Jerry asked me to do this, I did a, a series at Focus uh, this year with uh, someone called Will van der Hart, who you may be familiar with, who is an expert on relationships, and, and uh, we realized that, um, well, Will called me and said that we need to do something on singleness, um, would you like to do that? And I said, no, thanks, I would not, I've never sought to be the poster girl for singleness, um, uh, but we did it uh, at Focus this year, but we did it as a conversation, and we did it that way partly because giving a talk on singleness is is pretty tricky because actually I can only speak from my experience and uh, there are many, many reasons why people are single. There are um, many experiences of that. So my disclaimer for the night is that this is somewhere between a sermon and a testimony and so please treat it in, in that spirit. I said to Jerry on the way here, I'm, I'm slightly concerned that everyone will be offended by um, what I'm going to say tonight. So We're on. Hooray. Excellent. We're on. Two mics, all at the same time. You can't not hear it now. So I realize with a topic like um, singleness, some of you uh, might be thinking, I'm just too young to be worried about this, so thanks, but um, another time. I'm squeaking now. This is amazing. There's a mouse in it. Um, you might... Oh, I really am squeaking. Great. I'm going for the third mic. Great. Okay. How's this? Yay. I'm on. Okay. So some of you might be thinking, I'm too married for this talk. Um, this is not relevant to me. Um, I'm going to try and make it relevant, so hang with me. Um, you might be thinking, I'm, I'm single, but I'm doing life 
very well. Thanks very much. So um, uh, you've got very little to say to me. Um, but but I, we think it's important because actually for um, some of us, uh, this topic actually has profound significance and often quite acute pain. And uh, I think that we're coming to the realization that with a subject that actually has holds all kinds of um, issues around identity and hope and our ability to love God, it's important that we talk about it. And generally, we don't very much. Um, so it's not my favorite topic, but actually when Will asked me if I would um, help him um, think about how we were going to talk about it at HTB, I thought actually, no, this is a really important subject. And it is important that we tackle this in the same way that it is really important that we talk about marriage, and we've been really good at, at tackling that. But um, I looked it up yesterday, and uh, now 39% of adults in the UK are not living in a couple. So that's not cohabiting or married, 39%. So this isn't a small little minority issue, which even 30 years ago, perhaps it was. This is... This is a way that our culture is going, and uh, yet we don't generally talk about it. So I'm thrilled to be here, despite all my misgivings. Um, what I'm not going to talk about tonight is why we are single, because there are many reasons. Um, if I knew the answer to that, I probably wouldn't be. Um, and so we're not going to talk about the reasons why um, singleness happens, nor am I going to talk about how not to be single, which is generally what singleness talks are about. So I'm really sorry if that's what you were hoping for. Um, I've always found those talks disappointing because you still walk out in the same state that you walked in. It's not like a healing talk where there's a possibility that you might walk out healed, except in Jerry's case where he went on a prayer weekend and came back with a wife. Um, and the thing about Camilla was um, we, we met um, a very long time ago. Jerry says a few years ago. It was actually now a very long time ago. Um, I realized that she'd stay as my 25th birthday as a Christian, just saying. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Um, and I met Camilla shortly thereafter. That gives you a clue. Um, and uh, what's interesting is uh, Camilla at that stage wasn't sure she wanted to get married. That was part of the issue when she called me about having kissed Jerry, um, was the fact that she really wasn't sure she wanted to get married <coughs> or have children or do family life at all. She was, you know, supporting fishermen in the north of Scotland in their um, very crazy lives, and, and marriage hadn't really featured on her radar. Um, meanwhile, I was very convinced that I did want to get married and have uh, children. And yet here we are, um, she's married to the lovely Jerry with two of the most delightful children on the planet. And um, I have been single for that whole time, bar about three months. Um, and there are many reasons for my singleness, which I don't intend to share with all of you, as lovely as you may be. Um, some I've worked out, some I haven't yet. Um, but I suppose the, the, the reason I feel like I'm an expert on, on this subject is because I have been single for as long as I have. And over the years, it has been the source of a, a huge source of disappointment and regret for me and has included great periods of sadness in my life. And there are many times when I have arrived at the vicarage door um, in not great shape, expecting Camilla particularly. 
Jerry is good, but better at making tea. Um, <laughs> but, but where she has literally picked me up off the floor in, from a very desperate state of disappointment. And I think I spent most of my 20s and 30s um, really feeling like I was in the waiting room of my own life of waiting for that to happen. And a lot of that was because while the world around me was um, getting married, I had three years where I went to 13 weddings a year. I think I've been to about 100 altogether. That's what comes with church work. Um, but I, I absolutely felt like I was in the waiting room of my own life. And I remember in my probably mid-30s, um, talking to a friend and saying, you know, I just feel like my life hasn't, hasn't started yet. Like it hasn't, it hasn't begun yet because I haven't, I haven't met my partner. And, and this friend said to me, that is just the saddest thing I have ever heard. You know, she was like, you've started this organization and it seems to be working and, you know, young people's lives are getting tra transformed on a daily basis and your life hasn't started yet. And that was a real wake-up call for me, actually, of, of realizing that I w had, had somehow got myself into this funk and that I was stuck in uh, a waiting room of my own making in my own life. And there were all kinds of ways in which that manifested, man manifested itself. So it was things like, well, I, you know, I can't go there because that's where you go on a date, so I can't go there unless I'm on a date. Um, I mean, like really stupid things, like my, my cutlery was turning black. And I was like, I can't replace my cutlery because that's the kind of thing you have on a wedding list. So I need to wait till I've got a wedding list before I replace my cutlery. Now, I never said that out loud, but actually that was the way I was thinking about life. This was the, the extent to which I was in that waiting room. Um, and faith was really challenging. Because you sing, you know, a classic like Faithful One. And actually, you'd be like, oh, are you faithful though? Really? Because actually this is the one thing I've really prayed for for such a long time. And there's like no shift here. So are you faithful? And can I trust you with anything if I can't trust you with this? If this is my deepest, greatest source of pain, can I trust you with all the other stuff which I care about less? And everything was a trigger. So every Facebook post and every, you know, every soap episode, to which I am fairly addicted, um, was a trigger. Because what it felt like was everybody else's life was moving on. And I was stuck in this waiting room waiting for my name to be called. And the shame around that was, was actually really intense. And when I think about you know, why did I feel so much shame about that? I would now say, well, shame was a superb strategy of the enemy <laughs> to keep me um, out of action. You know, while I was feeling um, ashamed and defined by my single status, it was a, the most fabulous way of um, keeping me distracted from all that he might be doing or calling me to. Um, and, then how, and then I was thinking, well, how did he achieve that? And actually, there are some ways, and this is where, you know, I might be offending the church leader. Um, there are some ways in which, in which the church was reinforcing that shame. 
which uh, I've only in the last few years really um, come alert to. Oh, there were things like, there were very few leaders. And at the church I was at in my 20s, if you were a, um, a single woman, you, you weren't really encouraged to lead the prayers. Um, you sort of needed to be married to lead the prayers. I'm sure there was a really good reason why they thought of that, but I haven't worked it out yet. Um, and, and there were no single people generally, and certainly not single women, anywhere near the stage. Now, that was partly to do with you know, ideas of um, women in leadership at the time, but it was also very much attached to singleness. There was this sense that if someone was willing to marry you, then that was an endorsement enough that you were safe to put on stage. There was, there was something going on. I think subconsciously around that. There was something about the fact that what we always celebrated was um, people getting engaged, and that is good. I mean, I'm up for that. Um, and people getting married was wonderful, and people having babies and baptisms, and, you know, these were the things that we celebrated. Um, but, but the relentlessness of that and the focus on those things made me think that actually I wasn't worthy of celebration until that had happened to me and until I'd managed to find that space. And um, I also noticed that um, the punchline for every testimony was, and then I got married, um, especially if you've come from prison. So... <laughs> and generally, you have to marry your pastor's daughter. Um, if you've come from prison. Um, so, but, but I noticed that this was, this was the punchline of, of every talk, was I got married. And, of course, now, because now I'm doing the singleness stuff, um, like this, I'm noticing it more and more. I went to a talk last summer, I won't say who it was, and it was the most incredible testimony. And um, this, but this woman stood up, and the first thing she did was show us a picture of her husband and her two glorious children. She was, she was like, "Here's my husband and my two glorious children, and we are the happiest family on the planet." And and then her testimony was all about being rescued from gangland violence. I was like, "Actually, you know what? The truth is that is not what is the the most exciting thing about your life is not that you've managed to get married and have children." The most exciting thing about your life is that Jesus has rescued you from the extraordinary imprisonment of a very dark life. But the punchline was, and then I got married and had children, and everyone cheers. And I understand that. I'm not really berating that. But it's the, it's the subtle clues that, or the subtle signals that those kinds of stories give when you're single start to feel less subtle. It's things like, you know, all the courses, the marriage course and the pre-marriage course and the, uh, the marriage MOT. And, um, and then there's mums of little ones and then there's the parenting course and all the things that I cannot go to. Um, like, I just don't get to go to those things unless I want to serve tea. But otherwise, <laughs> I, I'm not invited to that stuff. Um, and then, you know, there's Christmas which is just Christmas for all of us, I know. But um, Christmas after 20 years on your own and the speculation about how you're still on your own every year, that's pretty tough. So there's, there's a whole load of stuff going on within the church, and then you layer on that what's going on in the wider culture. And when the pinnacle of cultural activity is Love Island, and that is what the world is talking about for the summer... 
And the, and the ultimate status is to be in a romantic relationship. It's not really surprising, but some of us, not all of us, but some of us who um, are single are walking around um, carrying quite a lot of shame. And, uh, and then, just as a last finale, it, there's the question, why is a lovely girl like you still single? Now, I'm just tackling this question head on because many of you have asked many of your friends that question. Never ask someone that question. They don't know. <laughs> or they wouldn't be. And if they do know, it's probably some really sensitive, emotional, psychological issue that they don't want to share with you. What you want to say is you would make a great husband or a great wife, depending on their gender. Um, but, but actually, again, what that confers on people is shame. And it's just really important to recognize that that's the environment we're working in. So when I turned 40, I went to a workshop on shame for single people where we were um, asked to write down our greatest source of shame and then share it with the small group that we were in, which was an interesting exercise. Um, and I realized in that moment that my greatest source of shame, I mean, I could have written any number of things down, but my greatest source of shame was being single. And then I thought, I think that's absurd. But it was the first time, at the age of 40, it was the first time that it occurred to me that that was absurd. And then, um, more recently, I um, read, in preparation actually for the stuff I was doing with Will, um, I read 1 Corinthians 7 again. And I've, there's a, a not short reading, um, which I've just... Um, taken from the Passion Translation that I just wanted to share tonight, um, which is going to come up on the screens in a second. I've abridged it slightly because it was so long. And therefore, by the way, it's a bit male-heavy. Paul is actually more egalitarian in the original. So now let me address the issue of singleness. I must confess I have no command to give you that comes directly from the Lord. But let me share my thoughts on the matter as coming from one who has experienced the mercy of the Lord to keep me faithful to him. Because of the severe pressure we are in, I recommend you remain as you are. If you're married, stay in the marriage. If you're single, don't rush into marriage. But if you do get married, you haven't sinned. If you do get married, you haven't sinned. I mean, it's interesting. It's just that I would l want to spare you the problems you'll face with the extra challenges of being married. I'm trying to help you and make things easier for you and not make things difficult, but so that, so that you would have undistracted devotion, serving the Lord constantly with an undivided heart. However, if a man has decided to serve God as a single person, yet changes his mind and finds himself in love with a woman... Although he never intended to marry, let him go ahead and marry her. It's not a sin to do so. On the other hand, if a man stands firm in his heart to remain single and is under no compulsion to get married but has control over his passions and is determined to remain celibate, he has chosen well. So then, the one who marries his fiancée does well and the one who chooses not to marry her does better. I mean seriously. 
seriously. I mean, I was properly angry when I read that again. Because that is just not the experience of single people in the church. That is not what we are teaching. And yet that, Paul is saying, I'm not saying this is from the Lord, but this is my experience. But Paul did know Jesus. And Jesus was single. And Claude said to me earlier, yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it, that we just say, you know, let's, let's live a life like Jesus. But we just sideswipe the single bit because clearly he didn't mean that. Now, I'm not even particularly fighting for that. I'm not, I'm not particularly fighting for all of us to remain single who aren't yet single. I'm not particularly advocating for that. I think what's very clear in this passage is Paul is saying, if you really want to get married, get married. And I would say, if you really want to get married, get married. But what that passage does say for us and makes very explicit is that there is no shame in singleness. It is getting married that he has to make clear is not a sin, not remaining single. And yet actually what we are often forcing our single family members in the church to live under is a sense of condemnation that they so far have failed. And what it feels like is that we have an ailment that needs to be fixed. And we pray about it in those terms. So that essentially is all I really wanted to say tonight. Um, If you go away with one thing, that was it. But of course, the reality is that living a single life, while it should be shame-free, is not entirely pain-free. When you get to my age, you're, you're dealing with the grief of childlessness. And again, we talk so much about the pain of infertility for those who are married and struggling to conceive. But actually, there are married people in your midst who are also dealing with infertility, but in silence and without any medical support and any pastoral support, but they too are dealing with the grief of infertility. There's the whole challenge of adjusting to the fact that your whole world, all the people around you, their life stages are changing and and yours are not. And you have to adapt to all of those changes and just suck it up. Um, But actually your life is remaining the same. And the feelings of exclusion that I talked about earlier Um, But sometimes, um, for all that marriage and family life offer, it's actually hard to understand that pain. Because actually, and this is where where I'm speaking to the singles in the room, sometimes you need to know, and this is what I've learned from Will, is actually they look at us and think, oh my goodness, look at that freedom. They're like, oh my goodness, they can buy whatever they want whenever they can afford it. And sometimes, even when they can't, without consulting anyone. You know, they can lie in every day. They can go out every night. And there is actually a a temptation for marrieds to, to look at us and go, oh my goodness, the freedom of that, the space of that, the the." The being able to live free from that responsibility. And let's be honest, there is pain on both sides of this equation. There is pain in single life and, and navigating that well. There is 
pain in marriage and in family life and navigating that. And the issue is we generally compare the worst of our lives with the best of other people's, don't we? We, we look at what's really tough in ours and we look at the, the best. I mean, Harry and Meghan's wedding, wow. You know, there was a weekend. Um, and I'm looking at the worst of mine and looking at the best of theirs. And do I want to be Meghan Markle? No. I do not want to be that nice to so many people that probably aren't that interesting every day. But on that day, I did. You know, and, and, and it's the same for marrieds looking at singles. It's very easy to look at the freedom that the single life allows without understanding the cost. And, and my fear is that we're getting into this sort of war of attrition where we're losing empathy for one another and that's where the silos come up and that's where the services become the family service and the single service and, the, and, and that's where the small groups, the connect groups get siloed and that's where the, the prayer groups, the prayer triplets get siloed. And uh, the lack of empathy increases and the attrition increases as time goes on. So, how do we deal with that? A few top tips. To our married friends, what does cultivating empathy look like? Well, first of all, I just want to say, can you celebrate your marriage and do Valentine's Day? Like, you've got the privilege of it. I know it's naff, and I know it's American, but just do it. Like, even if just in a little way, just do it. Because, frankly, otherwise you're ungrateful. But don't do your marriage and family life so intensively and so purposefully that you, real, you forget that you are actually part of a wider family. You know, we're so committed to, you know, date night. And I am behind you all the way. But that's one night a week. And, um, and actually, don't, don't become so invested in your family that um, you exclude. So next time you're inviting people over... Consider inviting your single friends, even if the numbers aren't even. And don't invite them all together. I got invited once, and I got a, a name badge on the door. It was awkward, and I didn't know that's what I was stepping into, and I wouldn't have gone had I known. Um, don't assume that people don't want to come if the kids are there, because they might, but at least give them the choice to turn you down. <laughs> um, and that extends to holidays, too. And I have to say, one of the greatest blessings for me is, and particularly, this is where I have to big up the fields, is they have been so incredibly inclusive with me in their holidays. And the blessing of that is just phenomenal. And getting to hang out with their kids and uh, just being included is really special. And the other thing is, um, don't assume that just because people aren't married or don't have children, that they don't need to hear about the problems that you are having with your marriage or your children and don't have anything to offer. Because actually some of us are quite good at that stuff. I am a professional. Um, <laughs> and if you have troublesome teenagers, I am available. I don't have any of my own, but it doesn't mean I don't know what to do with them. And sometimes we can feel quite shut out. Um, and it, it creates this illusion that married life is the, the ultimate goal if you don't let us in on the problems. And then to my fellow singles. Firstly, if, you, um, if you're young and you want to get married, 
I mean, I'd say do it. Get married. If you meet someone you'd like to marry, then marry them. Like, really, seriously, do it. Um, I would recommend it. I wouldn't dither. Don't do this, I'm going to wait till I'm 40 thing. Whatever that is that's going on now. Don't do that. Um, like, just, just do it. Just get married. Um, but be really clear that getting married is not going to heal you. Um, Will loves to put it like this. He's like, so sometimes there's this illusion that I'm a broken vase and, and my partner is a broken vase and together we make this amazing vase and sometimes there's this illustration of the gold in between us is Jesus and he makes us a complete vase. It's nonsense. <laughs> you are both broken vases and all that's going to happen is you're, both, you're going to have two broken vases to deal with rather than one. But you get to do it together. And that is more fun most of the time, but not always. So, so get married, but don't get married thinking that that is going to fix you. It's not going to fix you. And if you're a little older, like me, and um, if you are living, thinking that you're living in danger of being in the waiting room and that you are stuck there, um, we need to work at not being offended all the things I've told you in jest tonight, we've got to not be offended by that. Because honestly, don't waste time picking up offenses over that. The things, the insensitive people things that, that say to you, they never mean it. They mean kind things. Um, so choose to hear the kindness in what they're saying and reinterpret it for them if necessary. And one of the dangers of living in the waiting room is that we think that we're victims. Because like people who need healing and need food brought to them, we start to think that we too need food brought to us. Um, we don't, actually. So uh, we can cater for ourselves and also cater for other people. So um, the, the whole mandate to practice hospitality, that extends to you too. And may I say, you will never be more popular than you if you invite a family of five over for lunch. Because nobody invites them for lunch ever ever so don't um don't keep yourself in a child zone in a victim zone by not extending hospitality like it works both ways and if you want to live a full life that's what's going to be required and practice gratitude i mean this is true for all of us but the th one of the things that saved me, I think, um, in the end, was I was given this um, five-year diary, like a proper teenage five-year diary. It doesn't have a lock, but otherwise it's exactly like a five-year diary. Um, it's the most boring thing. You, I mean, you're welcome to read it at any time because all, it, all I do is list what's happened that day in my diary. I mean, there's no commentary on how good or not that is. But it's really interesting. I lost this diary for about a month a couple of years ago. I'm now in my seventh year. And um, emotionally, I took a nosedive. And I realized that what that diary does for me is remind me every day how rich my life is. That no, the truth is I would love to be married. And, but that is not my reality. But God is with me, with me in this reality. Like this is where he is. And actually, if I can recognize that this is where he is and write down every day the little things that I see him do and the little things that I get to enjoy... Actually, life is extremely rich. And from that place, I'm strong enough to give. Whereas from a place of feeling like a victim and in need of healing, I really can't. 
I'll come into land by saying, whatever our status, our marriage status, shame has absolutely no place in our lives. Whether you're married or single, divorced, separated, whatever, shame has no place in our life. It was to conquer shame that Jesus died. And so whatever your situation, don't do what I did, living in a, in a strange twilight zone, uh, living under that shame, thinking that you're smaller than you are because of something that has happened in your life or is not happening in your life, something you do or you don't have. We'll all carry shame at some stage, but we're told there's no condemnation for those in Christ. And condemnation is shame, because shame defines who we are. It's not about what we've done, it's who we are. So if that's your experience, if that's what you're dealing with now, whether it's because you're single or for any other reason, um, in the words of Taylor Swift, shake it off. Like, that has no place in your life, and it is the enemy's strategy to hold you back from all that the Lord is calling you to. So get wise to it, and move, move past it. Let it go. Let Jesus take it from you. That's, that was the point of the cross. It was for freedom that, we, that Christ set us free. That's what we're called to live in. And my... My final point in that would be, I remember probably about five years ago, it was, it was 30, I was 39, approaching my 39th birthday was probably the toughest time for me. Um, and uh, I remember saying to God this prayer, I remember praying this prayer, I was like, God, you know, you said you're enough. And right now you don't feel like you're enough. So will you be enough? And uh, I can't say that his response to that was instant, but it, he has responded to that. And my circumstances have not changed, but my life is very different. And so if you are in a place of shame or where you just feel like God is not enough, can I challenge you to ask him, challenge him to fulfill his promises? And I promise you, he will be faithful. Let's stand and we'll pray.